Um, you, you'll see our sermon text this morning is from the book of Numbers, chapter 33. So let me just uh, introduce that with a couple of comments. First, we'll be back in Matthew next week, Lord willing, uh, chapter 22. Um, secondly, there are a lot of place names in this uh, text, and I do not make any pretense of pronouncing them correctly. Okay, so I'll probably mess most of them up. Don't let that, please don't let that be a distraction to you. And then the third thing I would ask you to be alert to is that I know what this looks like to you. It looks boring and pointless. And it is neither. This is just as profitable for your teaching, for your reproof, for your correction, and for your training in righteousness that you as the people of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work as is John 3.16. Okay? It's an inspired text. So let's expect God to speak and to bless. Numbers chapter 33, 1 through 49. Hear the word of God. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hahiroth, which is east of Baal-Zephon. And they camped before Migdal. And they set out from Haharoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees and they camped there. And they set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. And they set out from Dovka and camped at Alush. And they set out from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hata'avah. And they set out from Kibroth Hata'avah and camped at Hazeroth. And they set out from Hazeroth and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. And they set out from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa and camped at Kelalatha. And they set out from Kehalatha and camped at Mount Shefer. And they set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Makailoth. And they set out from Makeloth and camped at Tahath. And they set out from Tahath and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah and camped at Mithka. And they set out from Mithka and camped at Hashmonah. And they set out from Hashmonah and camped at Moseroth. And they set out from Moseroth and camped at Bene Jaakon. And they set out from Bene Jaakon and camped at Hor Hagadgad. And they set out from Hor Hagadgad and camped at Jatbathan. And they set out from Jatbatha and camped at Abrona. And they set out from Abrona and camped at Ezion Geber. And they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. In the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. And they set out from Zalmona and camped at Punan. And they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ea Abarim in the territory of Moab. 
And they set out from Iyim and camped at Dibon Gad. And they set out from Dibon Gad and camped at Almon Diblafaim. And they set out from Almon Diblafaim and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemot as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Who is sufficient for these things? And we remember, Father, that the Apostle Paul declared, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Father, would you grant that I would speak in Christ? And would you grant that my brothers and sisters, that all of us would hear and worship in Christ this morning? Do a great work. Take this text that we confess, Father, seems so ordinary and so unconnected to our lives and, and open the eyes of our hearts to see the brace, uh, excuse me, the bridge of your grace connecting us uh, with you through this text and ultimately the Lord Jesus. And we pray particularly that even today, wouldn't it be just like you, Father, to save someone out of Numbers 33? And we ask you for that blessing. We ask you for that gift to be bestowed today for your glory and our eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, whenever we go to, uh, whenever we go to California on vacation, I'm just constantly, especially Berkeley, I'm just so full of the history of God's faithfulness. And even as, even as uh, Claudia was playing her offertory, she doesn't know this, uh, but right after uh, I had become a Christian, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And one of the songs that we sang every week was You Are My Hiding Place. So I'm sitting here listening to the offertory. I know what the sermon's about. I know what this text is about. And I'm just in awe of, of the history of God's grace in my life. And I think we're a lot like that, that DuPont chemist, Stephanie Qualick, who didn't know that she was looking at Kevlar. Uh, with our own lives, uh, we, we don't recognize the significance of what is right in front of us. And what I want to do this morning with you, um, I mean, I love Numbers 33 because I'm a Bible geek, okay? But that's not the only reason I love Numbers 33. I love Numbers 33 because what it puts on display is the Lord's covenant love and faithfulness for his people. And it, and, and it causes us to reflect very deeply, not just on how the Lord dealt with Israel, but, but how he deals with us. And, and I want to think with you this morning about the pastoral connections between uh, this record of Israel's, the Lord's dealing, uh, this record of the Lord's dealings with Israel during its 40-year wilderness journey, connecting the pastoral connections between this record and our lives. And I want to do that under three headings with you this morning. First is the record, the second is the path, and the third is the hero. So let's think first about the record. You know, this passage is actually something uh, quite remarkable that the Lord has given to us because it's not merely a record. It's not, it's not merely a record. This text is not just a record of where Israel camped during the 40 years in the wilderness. That's an amazing thing by itself. But the text emphasizes there's another layer of wonder here. This isn't just a record of where Israel camped during those 40 years. This is a record of God wanting a record. Look at verse 2. Moses wrote down their starting places. See, it looks like this list is Moses' idea. Let me just make a list. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, 
by command of the Lord. You see, this list is the Lord's idea before it's Moses's idea. And whose benefit is that? That's a very significant fact. Whose benefit is this for? Well, it's not the Lord's benefit. It's not like he's going to forget. But it's so that his people won't forget. Which, if there's anything that defines us as the people of God, it's that we forget his goodness. Amen? So this is ultimately for the people's benefit. Not only, I mean, immediately the generation that is coming out of the wilderness and is going to settle the promised land, it's for their benefit. But ultimately, it's not just for their benefit, it's for every generation of God's people after that. Turn with me, let me show you how the Apostle Paul thinks about this issue. Turn with me to Romans 15, 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which is on page 949 in your pew Bible. This is a very helpful verse when you when you're thinking about, okay, how am I as a Christian supposed to understand the Old Testament and and my relationship to the Old Testament? Look at Romans 15, verse 4, where Paul says this. And he's speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's clear as day there. Do you see that, friends? The Lord desired that a record of every single stage in Israel's journey through the wilderness would be compiled and preserved, not just as, well, just as much for our benefit here in Deland, Florida, in 2014, as for the benefit of the generation that entered the promised land out of the wilderness. Now, that's an amazing fact about this text. That means, friends, Romans 15.4 means that you and I don't get a pass when we read Numbers 33. We don't get a worship pass. Oh, that didn't apply to us. It does apply to us. What's the nature of the benefit? that we get from this record. What gift would God want to give us through a record like this? Well, I think Paul says it again. It's just clear as day. Again, the gift is hope, right? Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. We're the intended beneficiaries of Numbers 33. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope. Now, how could this record of place names that most of the Israelites probably barely remembered and that we certainly can't pronounce and that we haven't been to, how could a record like this possibly bear the fruit of hope in our lives? We're in Florida. Well, I think there are two levels to that, and the first one we're going to talk about later and think about later in the sermon, and that is that ultimately in this record, what you see at everywhere is that God is faithful to his people and loves them. Okay, he's the triumphant one in the wilderness, but I think there's a second level of significance that undergirds our hope here, and it's this. The wilderness, this list proves that the wilderness matters to God in all of its particulars. Every chapter in Israel's journey through the wilderness matters to God. Friends, that's important to you and me. Because the wilderness was the space in between. I want you to think about where they were before. The exodus. That's a big event. And where they're headed. Settling the promised land. The ultimate destination. And this place in between is not just a passing thought for God. Friends, it's very easy for us to think about our own lives in terms of these big punctuating events. That those are the only things that matter. You know, we get... To here, this matters, we get, we go again, and this matters, but the stuff in between isn't important. And this list says that's not true. 
in the life of God's people. Friends, every part of your story, of your life, matters to God. Not just the big picture of where you started and where you're going to finish, but the nature of God's relationship with his people is such that every part of the story matters. It, remember, it was not Moses' idea to write this list down. It was the Lord's. Think of it. that the, the wilderness matters to God. Do you know that, that in verses 18 through 29... Uh, the, the places listed in verses 18 through 29 are the only record, those verses are the only record of those places in the Bible. There's a lot that happened there that we don't have a record of, but God ensured that those place names would be preserved. They're the only record of them. Despite what the wilderness generation would have been tempted to believe and what we are often tempted to believe about our own lives, there are no numberless or faceless or meaningless moments. Now, sometimes people will say things, and and I I was thinking, as I got to this place in my preparation, I was thinking about conversations that I've had with various non-Christians over the years about this whole idea of this wonderful reality that the Bible is affirming over and over and over again that the infinite God pays the most meticulous attention to finite creatures. And I remember we used to have a pool table. Some of you saw that pool table. Luke and Lydia have danced on that pool table, much to my chagrin. I see the guilty, the guilty one laughs. And we sold that pool table one day, and the man who came and... Uh, because they weren't good enough as dancers. And the man who came to buy that pool table, I was talking to him uh, about the Lord, and he said to me, I remember exactly where we were standing in my driveway, and he looked up at the sky and he said, I just can't believe that my little life would ever matter to God. And I said to him, well, do you really mean that, or are you just using that as an excuse so that you can do whatever you want with your life? You see, you can be in awe. There are, two, there are two possible reasons that you would declare that your life is too small for God to care about. One is uh, because you don't want to be accountable to him. And the other is the good reason to be, in, to be the wonder that God could love his creatures like that. So think about that if you're a non-Christian. Don't don't dismiss your life too lightly. You know, if we think of our lives as unimportant or insignificant, uh, or we think about times in our lives as unimportant, this list reminds us that we are misinterpreting our own lives. We're misreading them. You know, I love my kids. I absolutely love my kids. I've loved being their father from the first day that I was a father, and I actually still love being their dad. But I have to confess that there are still times, you know, we'll look at pictures from our family history. And there are times when I look at those pictures and I have to be reminded of what the situation was surrounding those pictures. I don't remember all the details. I love my kids. And I remember them kind of being that shape. But... These pictures are snapshots of stories, and I don't remember the whole story. It's very often the case. You know, God never has moments like that with his people. Never. This list confirms that. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 139. Let me show this to you. Page 522. 139. Psalm 139, which is on page 522 in your pew Bible. Look at verse 16. We're going to move around uh, the scriptures a fair amount today. I love this verse. It says something staggering about the relationship between God and his people. And David says this, Your eyes, speaking to the Lord, your eyes saw my unformed substance. He takes his life all the way back. Maybe he's thinking that first line, you, you saw me when I was in my mother's womb. But now he takes it even further back in the next lines. In your book were written 
Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you see what that's saying? David's saying the Lord is the biographer of his people and that that biography was completed before David was born. Every single day of David's life. Now stand in awe of that. Why would he bother? He loves his people. God, friends, is your biographer. And he has meticulously and carefully and with loving care already authored and written every single one of the days of your life. And there is not one that is more important than any other. So don't buy the lie that your life in its entirety isn't important. Look also at Psalm 56, if you would, which is on page 476 in your pew Bible. I've shared this verse with a number of you. This, I, I found this text to be so helpful uh, in the, uh, just pastorally, uh, whenever I'm grieving or, or I'm uh, interacting with those who are grieving. And, and here again, David says something remarkable about the Lord. Look at this. Verse 8, again, speaking to the Lord, you have kept count of my tossings. Or depending on the translation, you have my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, I want you to think about that. That's good poetry. But that's even more beautiful theology. Because what that's being said, notice what David is affirming about the Lord's relationship with his people. God has a book. And in that book, he writes and keeps a record of all the tossings and wanderings of his people. In other words, that's an image to show that God is paying closer attention to your life than you are. That is wonderful. But God not only has a book, he has a bottle. Do you see that? And what does he do? The image that David has is that he collects your tears. Now, you don't even do that. God knows how many tears you have wept. It's this image of his meticulous attention to the smallest details of your life, the mesh of his attention and vigilance over your life, my brother and sister, is so fine, nothing gets through it. There's nothing about you he misses. There's nothing he overlooks. He is more vigilant over your life, and your life matters more to him, more to him than it does to you. Oh, that's amazing. So friends, this record in Numbers 33 is a witness. It's a testimony. It's not unique in the Bible, but it just reminds us of the kind of God that we are dealing with and what it means for him to be in covenant relationship with his people. There is a degree of care and watchfulness that he bestows upon his people, that the implication of which is that there is no part of our lives that is not eternally significant. So that's the record. Now let's move to the path. And I want to think with you about four aspects of the path. Four aspects of Israel's path through the wilderness as we see it depicted um, in, this, in this passage. And, and I think that these four aspects of Israel's path are very helpful interpretive guides for understanding our own journeys. So I'll, we'll look at the text and then we'll think about how it, under each of these headings, how it, how it relates to our own journeys. So first, I want you to see that the path that Israel follows through the wilderness is planned. 
It has a master. It works out according to a definite plan. Israel is not the master of its path through the wilderness. It's very common for us to use a phrase like Israel's wanderings, wilderness wanderings. Have you heard that phrase before? Israel's wilderness wanderings, as though they got out into the wilderness and they just went around in a circle and God had left them to themselves and they eventually figured out how to get to the promised land. Well, that is not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. The picture is actually the total opposite. It's Israel's wilderness leadings because God is the one who determines the path. Let's, let me show you this from Numbers chapter 9. So if you turn back, Numbers 9 is on page 118 in your pew Bible. Numbers chapter 9. Because you look at all those place names in Numbers 33 and you say, well, how did Israel figure out where to go and when to go there? How long to stay and when to leave? And the answer we get from Numbers chapter 9, starting at verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. You see, it's the Lord's leading that determines when they leave and when they stay. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Now, you see the point being made from Numbers 9 is that every, when we connect that with Numbers 33, every place that they stay and the duration where, during which they remain in these individual places is all determined by the Lord's leading. It's not Moses's leading. It's not that Moses doesn't take a vote from among the people. It's in response to the Lord's specific leading. And I think there are a couple of lessons that are very valuable for us as we think about this planned nature of Israel's, uh, of Israel's path through the wilderness. Friends, the first and the most obvious one is that the Lord is the master of our paths as well. It is often tempting to believe that we are wandering. If you're in Christ, I'm speaking now to my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're in Christ, here's what you know to be true on the basis of God's promise. Surely, surely the goodness and mercy of God will follow you, pursue you, overtake you all the days of your life and you will dwell in his house forever. You know on the bay, that's Psalm 23 verse 6, that's the Old Testament, Romans 8, 28. And then there's Romans 8, 28, where you know and you have the assurance of God that everything in your life, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that he is sovereignly and graciously weaving and bringing and overseeing and guiding and controlling and restraining everything for good in your life. Friends, God is just as much in control and has his loving hands on your life and is leading you just as surely as he was leading Israel through the wilderness. Your path has a master as well. And there is nothing that will stop or impede him from bringing you safely into his heavenly kingdom. You belong to him. He's, he hasn't spared his own son for you. Do you think he would give up his son for you at Calvary and then leave you to wander your way through life? Oh, perish the thought. So that's the first lesson. Your life has a path too. And the second one is that it's very obvious as we think about this list and its application in our life that efficiency, efficiency is not one of God's core values. It's not. So we just got to get that idea out of our brains. You know, for us, anything other than the shortest path between point A, the shortest and I should say easiest path between point A and point B, anything other than that is a waste, right? And we're impatient because all we get fixated on is A and B. 
But you know, if you look at the wilderness path that Israel followed, it wasn't the shortest path between A and B. In fact, Moses tells us very clearly in Exodus 13 that God deliberately, very intentionally, I mean, once the Exodus happened, if the goal is the promised land, here's what you do. You go up uh, by uh, the Mediterranean coast and you go up the Gaza Strip and boom, you're in the promised land. That's not what God did. Because, Moses tells us in Exodus 13, the Lord knew that the people were not ready. He knew that if they went straight out of slavery into the promised land, that they would meet with conflict with the Canaanites, and they were not ready for war, and they would return back to Egypt. And so there's a totally different path that is followed. God loves process. He loves process far more than we do. He is patient. He He does not think about the places, the spaces between A and B as as being of secondary importance. We think they're not as important as A and B, and we are wrong. Just look at your life. I mean, look at at it. Salvation, you're saved, you're justified, and you know you're ultimately going to be glorified. But what's this process like in here? Sanctification. Does that feel efficient to you, my friends? God loves the sanctification process. He glorifies Christ in that sanctification process. There is waiting. There is a growing dependency upon Christ and his power. There is a drawn-out triumph of Christ and his goodness over sin. There is the magnification of his faithfulness. And friends, we find ourselves often in life in places that we think are in between. But they are not insignificant, right? They matter to him. He loves process. Efficiency is not one of his core values. What looks to us like a long and winding and meaningless road is in God's wisdom and love actually the shortest and straightest line that would be best for us. Your salvation, my salvation in the gospel depend upon process. I mean, think about it. I was reading Isaiah 53 yesterday, and I was reminded that, you know, Isaiah says, for uh, speaking of uh, the suffering servant, which is ultimately, right, a prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus, the second verse in Isaiah 53 says, for he grew, speaking of the servant, for he grew up before him, speaking of the father, for the servant grew up before him like a young plant. Now I want you to think about that. The servant doesn't just pop into the world. He grows. Jesus grew. Jesus grew physically. Jesus grew spiritually. He increased in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about it. There is such a huge gap in the scriptural record of Jesus' life. Have you ever thought about that? We have, from Matthew, we have a lot of really important stuff about the circumstances surrounding our Lord's birth. First two chapters. Then the next time we see Jesus, he's 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. The next time we see him after that, he's probably 30, and his public ministry has begun. Now, that's about 18 years where we have no scriptural record. Do you think the Holy Spirit is suggesting to us that those 18 years were unimportant? (laughs) No. We know that the Lord Jesus, in those 18 years from the rest of the scriptures, we know that he was doing things for us that were utterly essential to qualify him to be our Savior. Do you remember what the angel says to Joseph? You're going to call his name Jesus, for you will save, he will save his people from their sins. And in order for Jesus to be qualified as the Savior of his people, to rescue us from our sins, he had to live 
uh, 18 years and more to the glory of God, embedding himself in our ordinary life, the thing that we look at and the, the rhythms of daily life that we are so prone to believe are not eternally significant. And here, my friends, is the Son of God filling them up with the glory of God for the benefit of his people. God loves process in all those days upon days in those 18 years. What Jesus was doing, we know, is what he says in John 8, 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Or John 5, 19, the son can do nothing except what he sees the father doing for 18 years and more. Jesus Christ, in the midst of what looked like an ordinary life, was filling them up, doing what was pleasing to the Father, essential to your salvation and to mine. A planned path. It's also a path, Israel's path through the wilderness, is a path of trials. Secondly, Now notice this. There are so many examples. When you read this list and you think about all the places and you start remembering earlier uh, episodes in the Pentateuch, you say, oh yeah, I remember that episode and I remember this one. There are a lot of trials. Israel's always hungry. Israel's always thirsty. I just want to focus on one with you. If you go to verse 14, and they set out from Elush and camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 14, Numbers 33. And that's the story that we have in Exodus 17 where the people have no water. They start to complain against Moses. Moses prays. And you remember the Lord says to Moses, okay, here's what you do, Moses. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to stand. I want you to take the staff in your hand that, uh, that you struck the Nile with. And then I'm going to stand. The Lord says, I will stand on the rock before Israel. And I want you to strike the rock with that staff. Now, that's very interesting because that's what Moses does and water comes out of the rock and the people's thirst is answered. Now, what's interesting about that is that God, we know from Numbers 9, that God led them to the place where there was no water to drink. That wasn't an accident. God deliberately, you see the dots being connected? God led them to a place where there was no water. Now, why would he do that? Because he doesn't love his people? No. God does that so that he can give and show more of himself to his people so that they would see he leads them into trials so that they would be able to see and experience his commitment to them, his provision for them, and his unparalleled power. Friends, when you and I think about the trials in our lives as Christians, they are not accidents. But nor are they punishments. For the children of God do not, our trials are not, they're not, they're not, puni- they're, they're not punishments that God sends. They're not, they're, they're not sent into our lives to punish us for our unfaithfulness. They are gifts given by God to astonish us with his faithfulness. Those are opportunities for him to give more of himself and for us to experience that. Friends, we don't think about our trials that way, but we should so Israel's path is a planned path. It was a path of trials, just like ours. And thirdly, it's a path of miracles. Uh, when you read this list, you think about these episodes. This would be one of them in verse 14. It's not the only one. But in that 40-year journey through the wilderness, there's a lot of miracles that God does for Israel, aren't there? There are a lot of, of things that he does. Some of the things are listed here, like the plagues in the Exodus, verses 3 and 4, the parting and crossing of the Red Sea, uh, verse 8, and then what we talked about from verse 14, the provision of water in the wilderness. But the, 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 so, so, you know, when you read the list, you think, okay, there was a big miracle here. There's a big miracle here. 
There's a big miracle here. But the reality is the entire journey was a miracle. It's one uninterrupted miracle. Not just gracious intervention here, deliverance here, gracious provision here. The entire path was a miracle. Because the entire path was the path of redemption where God was wielding his saving love for a people. Every step in those 40 years was a miracle. Think about the most obvious aspect of it. For 40 years, what did Israel eat in the wilderness? Manna. 40 years, bread came from heaven. Every day, every day, God of those 40 years, God provided. On Saturday, uh, excuse me, the day before the Sabbath, I got it mixed up. The day before the Sabbath, he provided a double portion. But every day, Israel's life over those 40 years was sustained by the miracle of manna, bread that came from the sky. There was not a single step. There was not a single moment. There was no aspect of that 40-year journey that was not a miracle. That means that there was not, by definition, even a single ordinary day or ordinary hour or ordinary moment in those 40 years because the entire thing was one uninterrupted, miraculous work of God's grace in the life of his people. Nothing less of God's sustaining grace was required for an ordinary day, so-called ordinary day in the wilderness, than it was when he parted the Red Sea. He did not give more of himself to his people, nor was he more attentive to them, nor was he mightier for them in the Exodus and at the Red Sea than on any other day or at any other place in those 40 years. There was no less of him being bestowed on his people. It might have looked that way to the naked eye, but in point of fact, we know from this list and the other texts in the Pentateuch that that was not the case. So friends, you know, when we think about our own lives, exactly the same thing is true for us. We need to learn to look at and to see and to comprehend our own lives in these very same terms. There are no unimportant days in the life of God's people. There is no unimportant place ever in the life of one of God's children. There is no insignificant moment. Because, not because we're great, but because of who God is. God is so good and he is so great that he fills every event and every place and every moment in the lives of his people with the full immensity of his love and of his favor. He doesn't check in on us periodically. That's not who he is. He's there all the time in all of his power, in all of his goodness. He never wanders from us. He transforms what appears to be the most ordinary and mundane moment or experience with the most extraordinary work and reality of all his worth and glory. You see, this is why every calling in life is sacred. This is why changing a baby's diaper is just as full of the reality, and it can be, right? And the reality and the power and manifest the glory of God as preaching. This is one of the things I love about being a Protestant because every calling is sacred. This is why if you're a high school student and you're doing, or college student, and you're doing your homework, something that strikes you as the ultimate act of drudgery This is how theology, understanding who God really is, can radicalize every part of your experience. And so the gospel and everything that goes with it 
isn't this thing that you compartmentalize as though there were a religious sphere of life over here and the rest of it was kind of secular. That is an unbiblical distinction. Again, because of who God is. You see, he bound himself in covenant love in the 40 years in the wilderness to the most minute details of the needs of his people, empty stomachs, their fears, their questions, their, the burdens that they prayed about. He, in all of his infinity, he bound himself in covenant love to that finitude, just as he does for us. It's an amazing thing, a path of miracles. That's what your life is. It's also a path of failures. Cheer up. Just like Israel's, right? It's a path full of miracles. It's a path full of Israel's failures of faith and faithfulness. We think, when we read this itinerary, we think about a lot of miracles that God did. We think about a lot of trials that Israel endured. And of course, we think about so many failures, right? They, they complained and wanted to return to Egypt. They grumbled against Moses and the Lord. So many times they said, oh, I wish we could just go back and be slaves in Egypt. We had meat then. We had cucumbers. We had leeks. Sorry, leeks aren't good enough for me to go back. But Israel said all these things, right? Now, but here's what's amazing about all these failures. You have to, when you come to Numbers 33, you have to read between the lines of Numbers 33 to find those failures because there isn't a single one that is mentioned explicitly here, is there? Not one. They're there implicitly. God doesn't pass over them in the sense of pretending as though they didn't happen when these place names are mentioned. Uh, for example, Kibroth uh, Hatava literally means graves of craving. It's a very dark episode from Numbers 11. But the gory details of those failures are not thrust forward in this list. I find that very instructive and very encouraging. God is not ignoring them. He's not acting like those places didn't happen. He wants them recorded in the record, but in a larger context. Because what what, what's, what this means is that Israel's failures in the wilderness are not the main plot line in the wilderness. Did you hear that? Israel's failures in the wilderness are not the main plot line of the wilderness. They are real, and they happened, and they were serious. But they were a subplot that serves a larger and lovelier and longer plot line, the plot line of God's profoundly radical covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And friends, just like my life, yours is full of failures. Each of us, each of us carries memories of places and times and events and chapters in our lives that we would rather forget and that we often go to great lengths to try to escape. Every single one of us does that. But you know what happens in the gospel? I mean, if you just asked us some of these events and experiences, if you just asked us what we wanted, we would probably say, I wish I could never even think about those things. I don't ever want to think about my failures. You know, in the gospel, and I understand why. I totally get that. That's how I think. But in the gospel, my friends, God gives us something better than we desire for ourselves. He gives us something so much better even than forgetfulness. He blesses us with mindfulness, his mindfulness about our failures and about our sins. You see... What happens in the gospel is that God takes us to the cross of his son and he calls us in to his mindfulness about our sins. He calls us in Christ to examine and think and look at 
our sins, not through the lens of our own eyes, but through his eyes. Now, friends, that's very important. That is not a small distinction. What it means to believe the gospel is to submit to examining your sins through the lens of God's eyes in both their gravity and their utter defeat in Christ. And it's got to be both. Our sin is way more serious than we would ever imagine it to be. Friends, nothing less than the... the, the crucifixion of the Son of God was required for my sins and for yours. Nothing less than that at the conclusion of a life of perfect obedience to God's law and humiliation and alienation and suffering. Nothing less than that. You can't make light of sin when that is God's wise response to it. But at the same time, the mindfulness that God gives us in the gospel toward our failures is a mindfulness that with, with our, the reality and gravity of our sins for the first time in view, right, at the cross, he shows us at the very same time the utter defeat and overthrow of the power of our sin to hold our identity or to define us for eternity. Amen. And so Israel's failures are a subplot in Numbers 33, just as they, our failures are a subplot. They're real, they're serious. But friends, if we're going to be mindful of them for the glory of God, we're going to remember that they do not hold the power for everyone who trusts in Christ and turns from those sins and is willing to submit themselves to viewing themselves and their sin and the glory of God and the work of Christ through God's eyes then for everyone who does that by God's grace, it is not their sins that will define them. Oh, the gospel is so much better. See, we would never make that up, would we? It's far too great. It's far too wise. You know, when I was th- working on this part of the sermon, I thought again of 1 John 3.20, which I have shared with a number of you uh, in various settings. Listen to this. For whenever our heart condemns us, and John's speaking as a Christian to Christians there. For whenever our heart condemns us, has that ever happened to you, Christian? Your own heart rises up as a prosecutor against you and makes, takes your failures and uses them to plead your guilt, to plead that you have no right to come before God, to plead that you're not forgiven, to plead, you know, to assert a claim that you're a hypocrite. Your own heart rises against you. For whenever our heart condemns us, the next thought in John's brain is God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. You see, He knows the true measure of our sin. And he knows the true measure of Christ's work and how it has satisfied him. And he does not condemn us when he views both of those, if we're in Christ. That's amazing. And that leaves us with the hero, which is the last point. The text is about a 40-year journey, but this sermon will not be a 40-year journey, I assure you, although it may feel that way. I mean, what's the ultimate point of this text? How are we supposed to read this text? Well, I think the ultimate point of this text is to present to us the ultimate hero. The ultimate hero of this text is Jesus Christ. This text is presenting him to us for our worship, for our trust, for our love. There's only room enough, friends, for one hero in Israel's story. Just as there is only room enough for one hero in the world's story. And there is only room enough for one hero in each of our stories. And that hero is Jesus Christ. Think about the wilderness, even just what we have from Numbers 33 here. You know, the hero of the wilderness is not the people of Israel, right? It's not Aaron, the high priest, because he failed. 
and died outside the promised land. And it's not Moses. Moses' failure, which is so severe in Numbers 20, is not even recorded in this text. And yet Moses doesn't, the one who writes this text, doesn't enter the promised land. So the only candidate left standing is that the hero of this story is the Lord. And I want you to think about 40 years in the wilderness, Israel's camped, and in the center of that camp is the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, at the very heart of the tabernacle, and therefore the heart of the people of Israel, is the holy presence of the Lord, who doesn't just visit Israel and check in periodically over those 40 years, but by his sovereign grace dwells in the midst of that people for all those 40 years, protecting them, guiding them, providing for them. And it's a beautiful story of his grace because they don't deserve to have him there. And what that physical structure pictures, you know, the, the holy presence of God in the center of everything and all of Israel's life in orbit around it, friends, that's just making visible what is true, not only in the wilderness, but in the universe and in every one of our lives, in the center of every life in the center of every place in the universe is this awesome, holy presence of God. And all of life, whether we acknowledge it or not, is dependent upon Him. Every human heart, whether we like it or not, is bending toward Him because that's how we were made to be. And what Israel experiences in the wilderness of God's triumphant presence in their midst, that's just warm-up for what God ultimately does many years later. That was just a shadow. That was a preview. That was a lovely aroma of an even greater coming wonder, the, greater, the greatest wonder of all, when the Lord would come to dwell in the midst of not just Israel, but the whole world in a tabernacle made of human And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally tented among us, tabernacled among us. God came as a man. And he did that because there was unfinished work between God and men. Unfinished work that the story of the wilderness bears witness to and illustrates And he was the only one who could finish it. He came dressed for work in our flesh. And in the power of his life, embedding himself, not just in a womb, but embedding himself in ordinary human life, he went to work from the moment of his conception in this life of law-fulfilling, perfect obedience. He did this so that he might be qualified. He endured temptation. He suffered. And in all of it, he adhered to the path his father had planned for him. He walked through trials that none of us would ever survive, and he was faithful. He, his whole life was a miracle. And there were no failures of his own in that life. And yet he came in all of his perfection, embedding himself in our ordinary life, that there would be one qualified to be our champion substitute who could present himself in the place of his people in a death that would finish the work of God's just judgment against all the sins of his people. And then God sent him to work in the grave. And he was in the grave. And on the third day, he continued to work dressed in our flesh. And he rose in the power of his resurrection. And it's that Jesus now. He's the faithful high priest who has never failed. He is the redeemer of his people who didn't come up short of the promised land. He made it all the way in, my friends. And now he stands in his royal authority in the midst of his church, ministering by the Spirit, from his throne in heaven. And he now opens that promised land of God's presence and favor. Open. Uh, He opens it wide to any and all who will trust in him. He is the hero 
you were made for. He is the hero who stands ready to give himself to you today. And I pray that you would. Let's pray. Lord, now we, we thank you for King Jesus and his glory. We thank you for his triumph and for your love for us and your meticulous care over our lives. Father, let us live as those who know you in all of your fullness in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.